welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 201. This week we recorded from the Kalahari at that conference in Wisconsin Dells, Wisconsin. We had some crazy awesome guests, including Richard Campbell. We had some crazy awesome guests, including Richard Campbell, Kim Swike, Rob Reynolds, and Michael Fazio. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. So now we're talking to Richard Campbell and... uh you have a, a, a podcast that maybe many people haven't heard of. Uh, uh, what was it called? I'm a little freaked out. This whole <laughs> I'm being interviewed thing. Like, this is weird. Like, what's going on? So it's called like .NET Rules or something? Something like oh, that. What is it? Oh, yeah. rocks. It rocks. Yeah. .NET rocks. So, no. yeah, we're at episode 1570. <laughs> that, is, that is insane. Yeah, it's been a while. 2002. I mean, I think we're now the oldest continuous running podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. There's a couple of NPRs that, were, that are from that era, too, yeah. but... They, they kind of cheat to get there. Uh, NPR has been around a long time, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and, my, and I also do the IT show, uh, Run As Radio. Right. Uh, which I'm about to record episode 600 on. Very cool. So Very cool. Every Wednesday since April of 2007. Wow. So we're going to be, depending upon how this lands, either 200 or 201. Wow. So <laughs> we have our own milestone here. Oh, congratulations, man. Yeah. 200 shows is a lot of shows. Like, yeah. Don't, my numbers are anomalous. Most yeah. podcasts don't get to 50. No, like yeah. that, as, well, a, fact, as a guy who researched a lot of podcasts, I'm telling you, like the number of 23 episode shows I've found. I know. When, when we started, that was our research. We we talked to people who did 50 episodes and then quit. Yep. And like, why did you quit? And we took that data and like, how do we not get there? Yeah. yeah no, was, and I think it's, I, I've talked to folks about all that all the time. 50 is a good number. You did a year. You yeah. did a weekly for a year. Yep. Totally legit. Like, yeah. A respect you know, that you, you committed to a year. But it's how do you keep your content fresh? Where are you getting your information from? Because you run out of ideas. It can't be about you. It has to be about some outside force, whatever that is. Uh, So speaking of ideas, you've been talking about for a while that you're working on a a personal project. I guess it's a personal project. I mean, it's a, you know, pretty quickly you lose control of your own project. But you're talking about history of .NET? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's it's a lot of work, but it's been a a pleasure, too. I'm still delighted. When I dig into some of these interviews and, and where they're at. So what, what got you, you know, you said it, it's kind of getting away on you, but like, how, why did you start doing this? So in uh, February of 2017 mm-hmm. was the 15th anniversary of the launch of .NET. And the Microsoft alumni, which is all the sort of ex-Microsoft people, wanted to throw a party. And they reached out to the Microsoft staff, the, the uh, .NET folks, said, hey, we're going to throw a party, and they, you want to help out. And so that sort of cascaded into a thing. And I got looped in as an old guy who sort of knows everybody and uh, helped with some coordination and stuff. And then they asked me, well, could we, if we brought you a Channel 9 team, like, could you maybe do some happy birthday .NET things? I'm like, okay. And so the party was held at a brew pub, oddly enough, you know, yep. Seattle. Uh, and in the back, we had a little recording space. And I was able to grab... You know, Anders Halsberg and, and Mads and Immo and like all of these folks mm-hmm. that have been around .NET for a long time. Immo's a young guy. And 
and get me to say a little happy birthday. But I realized in talking about that, those old parts, like the folks that build stuff, especially when it's, you know, from 1998, they worked on their piece. The fact that I've done this show for so long and I've talked to so many people, I had so much of that why things interacted the way they did in my head already that I was telling them things about the stuff that they did and how it affected other pieces. And they had no idea. And they didn't know, right? Yeah. So what are the what are the class example? Mads Torgensen, we're talking about C sharp two, so mm-hmm. two thousand five. It's sort of and, I, and it and it's a breakthrough version. It's like everything got so much better and so forth. And they're like, yep. well that was because of SQL C L R. And he's like, Well what the hell is SQL C L R? Well SQL it after one point one ship, the SQL team went to the CLR team I and said, that. "We want a rich language inside of SQL Server, mm-hmm. and uh, we don't want to write our own. We don't want to bend T SQL into this. Can we have C Sharp?" And it, it's a debatable idea. Like I don't know how smart that actually is, and it's off yeah. by default for a reason. Let, let, let's put more code into our SQL. Well, and, and this you think about in that time frame, that two thousand three time frame. This was the early quant stuff, yep. the real high velocity. It's before reactive exists, before streaming yep. is really a thing. So it's just it was an early solution to a car problem. So I already knew, although I know way more about it now as I've been doing more research, that the team that led that SQL CLR initiative, because they had to run the CLR in the context of SQL Server, they debugged through SQL Server's controls and the pressure that SQL Server put on the CLR was quite different from Windows. And so they turned up a raft of very exotic bugs in the CLR and were able to fix them. And so the CLR took this big leap forward. Well, Mads had nothing to do with that. He was working on C Sharp. Yep. And so he's like, oh, my God, I never knew. And, and that's that was sort of one of the kernel pieces where I came out of that party thinking, you know, if we don't write this stuff down soon. Yeah. It's going to be lost. That window but of opportunity ends. It, you know, yeah. I look back, uh, like, I remember seeing, like, history books of, like, the early days of Microsoft yes. and the Microsoft of the 90s. Yep. But, like, like as you're talking about the, the time frame of .NET, that's kind of like when... They start least, writing about Microsoft. Yeah, the, the authors lost interest in Microsoft. After the consent decree, after the DOJ. So, I've read everything, right? All of the Microsoft history yep. books, Road Ahead, all of those things. I've read them all. And they basically stop in 2000. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's you know, most of them end with hope XP is good, right? Like it's that that's sort of where they stop. Yeah. But it's also this is when the the anti-competitive uh, uh, Department of Justice uh, thing comes into play. And in 2000, they'll they'll be Microsoft will be declared a monopoly and have to be broken up. Yeah. And Gates steps down as CEO, and Bomber takes over, and the first thing Bomber does is negotiate that consent decree to keep Microsoft together, which he'll succeed in doing, but it, it takes him 18 months. He gets it done in November of 2001. So that is sort of the... I think it just... People looked elsewhere after that. Now you look at... Now you're going to look at... I mean, even Google isn't even around yet. Right. right. That's the crazy part, although one of the conversations that's been going on recently looking back on those times is the would could google have ever existed without the consent decree that would microsoft have allowed you know what, what would they have done in the search space that the consent decree sort of restrained them around mm. now, the consent decree is now expired it ended in 2011 but and, and but microsoft has culturally changed they, vastly different 
yeah, it's a vastly different company. Okay? Yeah, and that was such a key technology. How, how big was like how many people were involved in that whole project? I mean, that, piece. Well, yeah, I mean that's. But but and it's part of what's crazy about .NET is like nobody set out to make .NET. Yeah. Right. There was a group of folks that were trying to solve the runtime problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The VB team had a runtime. The Fox team had a runtime. The C guys had a runtime, and each one of those runtimes represents an ability to access Windows features. Yeah. So the Windows guys, and Windows is the crown jewels at this time, are very frustrated mm-hmm. that each of these programming teams essentially gets to decide how they're going to surface new Windows features. Yeah. And so one of the pressures on a common runtime was to make that simpler and less expensive. Yeah. Right? It's mm-hmm. easier to build. So that it's got to be language agnostic because Microsoft alone has a bunch of languages, yeah. right? Yeah, because .NET was like, it was sort of this nebulous thing for a while where it, it incorporated, it was like all these different things that were... Microsoft was groping around yeah. trying to figure out what enterprise development should look like going Yeah, forward. but it was like a, it was almost like a marketing term for a while, wasn't it? it yeah, I mean, the term comes out, .NET comes out after the, the tech is already starting to become yeah. a thing. But I also think that it was heavily influenced by the consent decree because okay. right away, like, why did they release C Sharp as an ECMA specification? And oh, the runtime, yeah, yeah. those were all that was weird for the time. They were yeah. all negotiating tactics for Microsoft is going to be a more open company now. Uh, you don't need to break them up. So all of the and then there's the shared source initiative, which becomes Rotor in 2002. Those are all ways of Microsoft presenting themselves as we're not going to keep these secrets anymore. Yeah, right. And that's you know part of that consent decree was that that companies that needed to look at the source code of Windows could. Mm-hmm. They had to. It was a process. Not anybody could look at it, but if you were, say, real networks, yeah. you were one of the original complainants saying, Microsoft, they, they're basically accusing Microsoft, you're writing if real, don't play properly code. <laughs> and the truth turned out when you actually saw the underlying code of Windows they were interacting with, they were just interacting wrong. Yeah. And so that sort of shared source initiative, which was not open source, yeah. solved that problem, allowed people yeah. to see the underlying source code. Yeah. So, this, I mean, this is just, this, writing this book, I mean, just... Even th- we're, we're like, this is really just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And like I was talking to, I think it was Josh Holmes at work and he was, he was talking about, I think he had talked to you at one point and he's like, you would not believe like the detail and how big this network is. And you talk to this person and get this detail. I mean, you sort of alluded to that. Um, this is just a monumental undertaking, isn't yes. it? <laughs> uh, and, and I'm, yeah, I'm not done yet. So please yeah. don't frighten me anymore, <laughs> but uh, it is. It has been a pleasure to talk to folks that I've known for years and sort of peel some onions, sort of get yep. into yeah. stuff that maybe they haven't talked about in a long time. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, we're the, uh, the earliest stuff is the most mature now. I'm getting into more of what happened with Vista and its impacts on .NET. And that leads to, to Win8 and its impacts on .NET. Yeah. Like, we're getting more of that. In some ways... There's even a remarkable, there's sort of four acts to this. Before .NET, that, that gestational period, the original manifestations are 2002, 2005, the .NET that sort of built what they intended to build, the enterprise dev environment. And then you get into the battle around Windows. What happened with Vista, what happened with, with Win8, which was, you know, .NET was invented to sell Windows, right? That was the original concept, was 22 languages, one platform. That was the marketing pitch in 2002. But as the operating system became less relevant, that relationship got really strained. Yeah. And it sort of comes to a focus point at Windows 8, where Windows 8 starts pitching just write everything in JavaScript, right? We have WinJS now. Right. Like you can do it that way instead. Uh, 
which doesn't go very far. And then you you have the, the sort of fallout of Windows 8, and they start having a conversation now about, is Windows really the center of the company anymore? Yeah. And I, one of the things in that, one of the versions of talk that I've done is I pull up the annual report for Microsoft for 2011, where they have something like 16 lines of businesses, 16 different business lines yep. that are more than a billion dollars yeah. in revenue. And like all but three of them depend on Windows. And the yeah. three that don't depend on Windows are like Bing, Xbox, and Skype. <laughs> and none of them actually make money. They just have yeah. revenues in excess of a billion dollars, yeah. right? Well, now Xbox is dependent on Windows. Well, yeah, they've got the Windows kernel <laughs> yeah. in there, yeah, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah. Um, and Skype's being transformed, perhaps not for the better. You know, that's a, whole <laughs> uh, that's a topic for a yeah, different But topic. it's, you know, as a leader inside of Microsoft looking at that annual report, like, you have to understand, they're beholden to their shareholders. Like, you don't just get to walk away from stuff. So the fact that in that... 2011, 2012, 2013 time period, we have this shift where .NET starts living independently of Windows. Now, at the same time, the cloud ascends. You know, there's a very important moment that maybe I'm giving away a bit of the story here, but it's a pivotal moment. Yeah. When Scott Guthrie goes to start working on Azure, he takes a web team with him. The web team is now sort of disconnected from .NET, and they are trying to just improve the tooling for Azure, yeah. but they know .NET. So they start building stuff that's .NET-y, but is independent of Windows because they're working in Azure. And that is the kernel of what would ultimately become Core. Nobody set out to make Core. It emerged as a byproduct of becoming a cloud-centric company. Wow. So do you have a, this is, you're probably not going to like this question, but do you have a ship date for the book? Yes. <laughs> you do. When it's done. Okay. <laughs> so I, I, I love I guess that. I, I had a similar but different question. You know, as we're talking about the history of .NET, no matter how far you document, .NET's going to keep going. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, do you have a chosen spot in time where you're going to stop your, your, your documentary or history or narrative? Every time I think of one, it changes. Mm. You know, I thought the announcements around Core 3 would be a good close. Yep. But the acquisition of GitHub's a pretty good close. <laughs> like, yeah, interesting stuff keeps happening. Keeps happening. Well, and I'm wondering if I'm thinking if do, play do it, you eventually like, make this like a like one of those live books where that's what you I mean. you write it to a certain point and then it just keeps like you get a new chapter every quarter. Well, here's the other problem: nobody's interested in all of the history except maybe me. So the mobile story is massive, right? Yep. Even go, go pre WinPhone Seven. Right, the CE yeah. story is very cool, and I learned a lot that making .NET rocks. The fact that there was a subset of Silverlight that was the program environment for WinPhone Seven, but it's completely abandoned for WinPhone Eight, yeah. and then completely abandoned again for WinPhone Ten. Right? Yeah. There's a whole story to be told adjacent to .NET around mobile. So I'm beginning to wonder if this is this idea of like build your own book. Tell me the topic areas you're interested in, and I'll pull together a set of chapters. Because you don't want the whole thing; it'll be Titanic. Like I don't want to write. Flipping war and peace about .NET yeah. history, right? Yeah. But if you care about mobile, let's add those mobile cha chapters. If you care about web, let's add those web chapters. Yeah. You know, if you care about desktop, let's add the desktop chapters. So you can sort of piece the thing together. And yeah, we might be evergreen. There might be new chapters adding on a routine basis. Yeah, I'm just picturing like CSI, like in your basement, you have like all these different pictures of people at Microsoft with like strings between them. On, <laughs> on you're, and you're not far wrong. I feel 
uh, this process has been very forensic for me. Yeah. That I'm getting people's entire stories and matching up where, you know, three people have now confirmed that there was a meeting that this person said that thing in, ah. but I can't get that person to admit they said it <laughs> so far. So yeah. that because I am dealing with people's memories, yes, that people have are terrible memories. They're yeah. terrible, and it's twenty years ago, and so much color, so many things. And so it's helped a lot to be able to spend enough time wow. gathering these stories to sort of con- come to a consensus version. Mm-hmm. Not that there will ever be consensus. I know I'm going to upset people yep. when I take when I take one, and I part of me wonders: is not going to be some point in the book where I'm literally going to say, "All right, I have three versions of this. I don't know which one is true." I'm going to tell you them all. Like, I think that might happen. Yeah. But, you know, there are these weird moments and people remember them differently. That is crazy. You just said it was 20 years ago. I can't believe that. <laughs> it's 2018. Yeah. In, in 1998. Yeah. The first bits of the CLR were coming together. They yeah. started in 97. Yep. The that- prototype of ASP.net, which at that point was called ASP Plus, was demoed. In, July, in January of 1998. That is crazy. I started using .NET when it was in beta. That was in 2001. Yes, that was the pre-release. Yeah, so that that's that's when I got involved. But I, it's mind-boggling how, fo- how long ago that was. And, and the gestation took as long as it did. It took yeah. over four years. Yeah. To get .NET what together. Was huge. I mean, look at VB6 before that. Oh yeah. Like I mean, it was just like mind-blowing at yeah. the time. Well, plus. You know, the, that, that ASP Plus edition, the one that was showed off in, in Jan 1998, the scripting language, the language that you would program in, was Java. Oh. It was J++. That was the only object-oriented language, natively object-oriented language, that Microsoft had at the time. Yeah. The Sun Microsystems uh, suit that would shut down Java development in Microsoft will happen later that year, yeah. and they'll have to rip it out. And they don't get C-sharp right away, so the that thing's in flux for a while while they try and figure out what to do yeah. before the prototype of you know an object-oriented language, you call it C object-oriented language or cool, yeah. that, that's where that comes from. <laughs> yeah. you know? But you also think about it, C-sharp is the first and only language that Microsoft has ever written from scratch. Yeah. Microsoft has always taken existing languages and made their own versions of them. Basic, C++, but that's what they've done. Yeah. It was kind of a big deal to go, well, we need a natively object-oriented language. What do we do? Yeah. And and Anders sort of ran with it. Yeah, that's cool. Well, so what, what brings you to this conference called that conference? <laughs> so uh, Clark Sell and I go way, way back. Yeah. And uh, I've been in, I was involved with the show from the very beginning, one of my favorite shows. It's just, it's so different. Yeah. It's got a, it's got a really, you know, there's so many events you could you always want to find that fun flavor yeah. and i it's been a couple of years since i've been i i was busy in august in 2016 wow. 2017 so this is my year back yeah what is it's it's uh it's great seeing you it's, it's and it's great to be here this is a show with i think one of the largest concentration of kids yes that present my son is literally sitting behind me <laughs> yeah absolutely and so that family i'm really fascinated by this family dynamic yeah you know, i'm a guy who studies conferences all over the world and so this one, this one has a very unique tone, and I, I take cues from what's happening here with kids. Yeah, watching kids teach kids to me very profound. Yeah, very, very. I moving. know we were talking to kids yeah, earlier, earlier today. Yeah. We talked to a 15-year-old where this is her fifth year presenting. Exactly. And and what was like even more astounding was how much she under understood the benefits she got as a speaker. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of people who are adults speakers who don't even understand that. I yeah, don't grapple it near as well. And you just you gotta think about who and that person's gonna be in ten years. She's gonna have an outstanding future. 
I, I hope so. Right? Well, I mean, set, she's going to go. Up, she's yeah. set up well. She's 15. She's going to go through some remarkable transformations in the next and few years. And it doesn't years. matter what she goes into. It doesn't have to be in this field. Yeah. The ability to get up in front of people and engage your room and do something with that, I don't yeah. care what you're doing. It's yeah. a powerful skill. Yeah, it's and incredible. so, and, and I, I thank Clark for getting hooked on how do we help these kids teach each other and growing a cadre of young adult speakers. It's yeah. remarkable. Yep. Well, whenever the book does come out, whenever it's finished. Am I, I, I'm thinking a Kickstarter. Okay. Which, which just is a way to put me on the hook. <laughs> Let's go pre-sell the first printing, so I really have to get it done. I, I, and then I think I'll that would be successful. I, I hope so. I whatever. I don't care if it's a thousand pages, if it's ten thousand. I will. I promise. I will buy whatever. Uh, it is. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. So, but if I make six different versions of it, or make it multiple volumes, you'll buy them all. Like, <laughs> no. I'm trying to figure out the right way to do it. I, I have written a bunch of chapters which I haven't, I haven't really shared around yet. Yeah. But I'm trying different styles. Okay. To sort of see, like, do I do this a narrative style? Do I do it a biographical style? Just seeing what really resonates. So I'm, cool. I'm working on it. I mean, I have it's history. It isn't going away. I've well, captured a lot of well, it. You got me excited about I'm it. I'm super excited about and it. And my, I, you know, I turned out, I started talking to people at Microsoft, and like my manager, he was the guy that was working on the update panel for ASP.NET. Awesome. You know, and I'm just like, why did you never tell me this? I'm like, that's so cool. <laughs> you know, and that like, yeah, yeah, there you talk about like that whole history of Ajax. Yeah. Right. And they, how it started in Outlook Web Access, and they literally convinced the IE team to add this feature. And although, interestingly, Ajax still isn't a ratified specification in the W3C. Like, <laughs> oh, really? Still. Yeah. Because it came from this weird way, and it's just been argued about ever since. Yeah, yeah, Because, like, like, people were doing it, and then they tried to label it, and then, yeah, it was confusing. And they tried to find what you should be doing with it. And say, <laughs> yeah. The history of the web. Maybe I'll take that on next. Because you know? that's... <laughs> The web development is nutty, the things that we Oh, I know, I know. It sort of exploded, too, Absolutely. a hockey stick. So, so Richard, thank you so much for coming on here. Oh, this my was, pleasure, guys. This was truly an honor, though, getting uh, you on the my, show. My pleasure. So. You guys do a great job. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now we're talking to Kim Swake. She's a senior software engineer. Hi, Kim. Hey, Carl. So um, you were part of uh, that Give Camp here at that conference. What is that? Yeah, so that Give Camp is something that's been run every year. Um, the first year we did something for JGRF, I believe it. Mm -hmm. um, but ever since um, 2013, we've been partnering with Humanitarian Toolbox. And they do different types of applications for disaster relief. Uh, so we usually have a different focus every year. Um, past couple years, it's been already. Uh, we did already again as well this year, but we were also focusing on an application called Mobile Kids ID app. Um, and it's for helping to track missing children in Minnesota. Right. So let's back up a little bit. And the Humanitarian Toolbox, um, it, as far as I know, is, is a bunch of software that's on a GitHub page, that yep. there's also an organization around to help get volunteer software engineers donate time to build that software. That is correct. So, um, again, the, the goal of it is to build disaster relief software, but the, the software is written by volunteer software developers. So... Um, <laughs> so, how long, you know... Obviously, that was done before the conference, right? So, so how how did the word get out to people who wanted to help volunteer ahead of uh, this conference? So, uh, we communicated in different channels with that conference and Twitter and whatnot. Um, it's something that you can actually 
since it is on GitHub and it is open source, like anybody can tri- contribute to it anytime. Mm-hmm. Um, we've just always tried to make an event out of it as mm-hmm. part of that conference to get the community together um, in more of a instead of just being virtual all the time, being able to see the people that you're contributing with and talk with them and, and get to know each other and get to know the applications a little bit. So how many people were part of uh, this year's uh, Give Camp? Um, there is about a total of 10 of us that were contributing to the software throughout the weekend. There, we also had some virtual participants um, that work on it you know, pretty continuously. Um, so we kind of had a Slack channel open and we were working with our virtual participants as well as on-site. So. What kind of technologies are, are being used to build this uh, humanitarian software? Um, so the application that we were mainly working on this weekend uh, is built on Xamarin Forms as well as a cross-platform mobile application. And again, um, the application that we were doing was for the Missing Kids Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, already is a web application, so it's all .NET related. I believe they've converted it to .NET Core now okay. at this point. So... So do I need to have expertise or any kind of familiarity with these technologies to kind of get in and start helping? Um, it probably helps to be somewhat experienced in .NET, but um, they're pretty good with hum- Humanitarian Toolbox about, you know, if, it, if you're new to the project, they have like up for grabs uh, tags in their GitHub repos to... Those are good usual starter projects. So, so yeah, if you haven't done a lot with open source already, they they make it easy for you to kind of get in there and get Absolutely. going. Absolutely, awesome. Absolutely. So, I know I've run into you in at that conference a bunch of times previously. How, you know how how long have you been coming here? I have been here every year that it has been around. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so it's so, a lot of fun. <laughs> so what's your draw in coming to that conference? Because I know you go to a lot of other conferences as well. Um, well, that conference is really special in the sense that I am from the Midwest. So it's, it's the first conference that I've been to that's you know in the Midwest that's a bit larger. Um, but the other aspect of it that I really love is that they have, the, they all open up to being able to bring your families. Mm-hmm. And that is an aspect that I have never seen at any other conference. And it just puts a smile on my face to be able to see, you know, developers bring all of their family members, all their family members can get a better understanding of what they do as a career. Yep. Um, see, you know, the different ways you can apply your knowledge and your uh, the work you do on a day-to-day basis. Um, I think it's just a rewarding experience for everyone that's involved. And for me, that conference is something special. Um, in 2012, when that conference started, um, it was when I first started attending different conferences, and this that conference <laughs> is um, was pretty much the primer to get me back into a career in software development. Um, I had had a bachelor's degree in information science, which was kind of a, a cross between computer science and communications, um, but I hadn't really utilized it, and after that year of going to that conference that inspired me to go back into school 
and get into software development. So cool. Yeah, I, I know like from the very beginning, that conference had a very strong family approach. And I think that one thing that is interesting throughout the years, and I, I don't have insight to, you know, like how this was set up and what the plans were, but because so much was, uh, was done on families and including everyone, one thing I noticed that unlike other conferences, even when you have just techies talking to each other, they're talking about their personal lives or things having nothing to do with technology and really creating these ad hoc friendships. I would agree. And I think the thing that's wonderful here is that you can get people from all different backgrounds, all different experiences, and everybody has something to say. Everyone has something to talk about, and you learn from each other and you grow from each other. And I, you know, that was one of the points that they were hitting on in the keynote this morning, in fact, is that we all learn from one one another from the different knowledge and backgrounds that we have. So kind of jumping to what I was alluding to earlier, you go to (laughs) a lot of conferences. I I think that out of all the conferences that I've ever gone to, and I mean like ever gone to national ones like build, um, just local ones like that conference or regional ones, you go to them. I've never not seen you, I think. And so, you know, one, like, why do you go to like that variety uh, of conferences? And, uh, you know, how, you know, what do you get out of going to that many? Um, sure. Well, one of the things for me is being able to meet new people and build relationships with people I might know that are already there. Um, another, Part of it is just staying abreast of technology and trends and seeing where things are going. Um, there's all different reasons to go, but a large chunk of it for me is just um, getting to to build my relationships with people. Yeah, because yeah, I think the ongoing joke whenever we run into each other is, <laughs> of course, there you are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We'll roam the halls of whatever conference center uh, is out there, and we'll probably run into each other. <laughs> All right. Well, it was nice talking to you. I hope you enjoyed the rest of that conference. Oh, I will. And thanks for having me, Carl. Raygun provides full-stack error, crash, and performance monitoring for tech teams. Whether you're a software engineer looking to diagnose and resolve issues with greater speed and accuracy, a product manager drowning in bug reports, or you're just concerned you're losing customers to poor quality online experiences, Raygun can provide you with the answers. Get full stack error and performance monitoring in one place. The next time you're struggling to replicate errors and performance issues in your code base, think Raygun. Head over to raygun.com. Get up and running within minutes and dramatically improve the online experiences of your users. Hello, hello. Hello. So we're talking to a longtime friend of the show, Rob Reynolds. How's it going? Hey, how are you doing, Jason? Good, good. Good to talk to you again. Yeah. So, Chocolatey, what's, what's the latest? <laughs> wow. Uh, man, it was last year this time I think we chatted, right? Yep. Uh, a whole bunch has changed in a whole year. We've, uh, the company's grown some. We've, we fired some folks. We uh, got recognized by Microsoft officially at, at uh, MS Build. Yes, that I was saw pretty your awesome. build, yes. Uh, by the way... Uh, Five days notice on that, traveling to Seattle, five days notice. It was, let's say it's normally like $300 to go to Seattle. It's probably like $1,200. The upgrade for uh, first class was like $100 more. At that point, it's like, yeah, let's just do that. So yeah. 
just <laughs> it was well from our perspective it was worth it it was it was definitely worth it man yeah. it was a it was a blast uh, got to hang out with some of the microsoft folks that have been working on wsl and some other things and yeah, yeah so shout out to yosef and, and rich and yep. and uh you know that team well, why don't you tell us what was uh what was announced again oh so Quick uh, recap because i don't think we got sure. a chance to talk no, we, we, talk we didn't on, talk specifically. We didn't talk about on the it. mic at build, so yeah, we should go over that. No, so uh, what they announced was a officially recognizing Chocolatey, uh, kind of a, up on the keynote on, on Tuesday. Is yeah. a, a Microsoft loves Chocolatey and Box Starter, right? So yeah. officially recognize that and a collaboration. So now uh, Microsoft unofficially has sort of you know, folks that work for Microsoft have been working on things with Chocolatey and some con- contributions, and now officially Microsoft has said yes. That's something that we can do, mm-hmm. and so there is that official collaboration now. Okay. So is that it, does that mean there is there any support for like you know sort of official packages then from, uh, from so Microsoft? That, it's something still uh, to be dis- to be discussed, right? Okay. So we haven't quite figured out that uh, whole side of it yet. There's some really interesting things that we talked about. I can't share yet, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, that could be really interesting to, to see something yeah. like that. Um, one of the other things that's really neat is uh, one of the things that, that Microsoft has put together is this uh, dev setup scripts repository. Uh, it's out on GitHub. Uh, I think you can go to aka.ms slash dev setup is one word, and that'll take you to it. Okay. Um, and what you'll see there are box starter scripts that will help you uh, have like a, a one-click installer. So you go to the special link that they have. Not in Chrome, though. For some reason, Chrome doesn't like one click. Um, and it'll, it'll pop up something, and you'll be able to click that, and it'll go through that whole installation process of getting a machine set up for, like, node development, uh, other types of web development. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm a developer, and I'm using Visual Studio and all that, and that kind of stuff as well. And so, and all of that uses that community resource that we have through the, the community package manage. Uh, Man, I can't talk this afternoon. Community packages. Yeah, so. it's it's getting it's getting late it's, in the day. It's, this is, it's getting close to beer clock. So. Yeah, this is this is like you know, it's an energy sap. It's fun. Oh yeah, but uh, yeah, it, it takes a lot to keep going. This is a great conference. Yeah, and then I think whenever it was out there too, we were, I was talking to you about um, chocolatey for like store apps. Yes, I remember that, and that, yeah. that still uh, is fresh in my mind. Uh, <laughs> we still have a, a conversation to follow up with uh, some of the folks there on okay. that. So. Very cool. Uh, and I know Yosef does as well. <laughs> yeah, no, I, well, what I love too was like, you know, you guys were really receptive to the feedback. It's like, hey, here's here's what I'd love to see, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and just and, for folks on here, what was that exactly? Well, um, I, I think I had like a whole list of requests. <laughs> I mean, what it really comes Fair down enough. to, <laughs> what it really comes down to is just being able to have that script that sets up my machine, which, I, which obviously our goals align there. But including being able to include store apps in that, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So in my script saying install these 10 apps because I always want these. Uh, but we also, some of my other re- requests were uh, basically roaming, uh, roaming sets of apps. You know, So when I log into my Windows machine, it knows who I am. Yeah, because it's my live ID or my Microsoft account. Yeah, it should set up everything for yeah, you. Yeah, right? it should just set it up for me. So I want it. I want it to. What I'd love to see is I, I log in on a new machine and it pops up. Hey, would you like to install your chocolatey apps and your store apps or you know however whatever that phrasing is? Yeah. And if I click yes, then I get my standard set of machines. Or everything set, gets set up. Apps. Yeah, that sounds and pretty then, awesome. And then the other part, I have I always have a lot of requests. The other one was being able to designate apps as like these are the apps I want to roam. You know, sometimes there's an app that I put on one machine, but most of my apps like Visual Studio Code, um, mm-hmm. just a, you know, pretty much any time I log into any Windows machine, I want Visual Studio Code. 
I'm just going to want it. And my settings and all my extensions that oh, I have course. for that, right? Yeah, yeah. go big or go up. home. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So w- one thing that's kind of new for you uh, as we're sitting here at, at, at a big conference is you're putting on your own conference pretty soon, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, this is a great place to plug that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I always like forget. We're doing so much. Uh, yeah. It's been a crazy summer. Uh, so I also moved this summer, which I think you did as well, yeah. Jason. And that was uh, not planned. That was actually the day after I got back from Microsoft Build. They said, uh, had somebody call and said, we're going to sell our place. Would you like to come look at it? And it's right back, wow. some land that we own. So wow, cool. uh, we were like, yeah, sure, let's do that. Let's uh, add this in. So we're doing a conference uh, called Chocolatey Fest. It's two words. It's not one. Um, and uh, it is EY as part of Chocolatey's name, right? So Chocolatey Fest. Uh, to confuse the matter further, there's probably going to be a Willy Wonka there, you know, okay. a little bit of a, some chocolate stuff. Is so it, we don't do a lot of in Hershey, Pennsylvania? Or? It's not in Hershey. You know, somebody has said that would be great if we would do a, a conference actually in Hershey, probably surrounding National Chocolate Day to really confuse people and maybe, like, get, like, Nestle or somebody to help sponsor it. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. People are like, what is this conference? Is this is uh, so it's it's kind of interesting. So there's there's a chocolate fest. Okay. I want to say in uh, Topeka, Kansas, where I'm from, okay. right? Because that's where Mars is is located. Which oh, okay. I didn't know that for about four years. But chocolatey was there first. Okay. So, um, but, so we're like, what what kind of name could we use for this? And so we looked for a name. Choco Con kept coming back, but because uh, it sounds fun. Uh, yeah, it does. So that's kind of the unofficial name of Chocolatey Fest. Chococon. Chococon. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, we wanted the full name in there with, with something, and, and Chocolatey Fest seemed to stick. Okay. We really like that. So yeah, uh, it's a one-day conference. It's in San Francisco, so it's uh, nowhere near here um, for any of us. Yeah. San Francisco, October 8th on Columbus Day. So it's uh, we call it uh, the theme of the conference is discovery, right, because this is when America was discovered, all that. We actually... Um, Sent out the uh, call for proposals and everything on June 14th, which is Flag Day. So we raised awareness for uh, Chocolatey Fest. So I kind of like symbolism. So uh, yeah. we're going to be talking about things, uh, you know, with uh, WinOps type things, right? So WinOps is DevOps specifically for Windows. So some people want to call it Windows automation. In fact, that's the term we usually use with WinOps is Windows automation. Uh, and so that's uh, kind of the conference. So we're going to see talks about chocolatey stuff. Uh, chocolatey commercial stuff, but then also talks that have nothing to do necessarily with chocolatey uh, directly. So we're going to have talk there by Ansible. Uh, Red Hat's coming out to do that talk. We're going to have uh, Yelp's doing a talk. That talk is on, uh, you know, using chocolatey on the desktop side and, and kind of doing that in comparison with the way that they manage, I think, their Mac environments as well. And so that's, it's kind of an interesting talk that we're going to see there. Um, there's a few other talks that... Uh, uh, have been submitted. We're getting ready to accept quite a few more. We uh, have a. F- I think we've closed the CFP as of last week, but we we're looking for a few more talks to get accepted. So if you uh, hear this or you, you catch on the, uh, the show, the, the CFP might still be open unofficially because uh, okay. we're still looking for a, a couple more talks in there. So we may hold it just for a couple special things that we're we're looking for. But so, so who should attend? I mean, is this so, or is it like? Like somebody who would be creating a package, would it just be like a, a user? So the uh, target focus uh, for this is, is anybody that's in DevOps, really, that does Windows-focused DevOps. Okay. So it's it's more of that system administrator side okay. than it is like I'm a developer. So and really I'm focusing something. on like enterprise. So yeah, it's, it's more towards like IT pros. Yeah. Um, what uh, we're also doing is, uh, if you've heard of WinOps in London... 
We're now Chocolatey Fest, a.k.a. Winop San Francisco. Okay. So we, we're pairing with that particular okay. conference series uh, as part of ours. So a lot of the talks you've seen at Winops, uh, winops.org, by the way, that's where you find that, winops.org, uh, we're now the San Francisco version of that for this year. Okay, cool. and so if we go to Hershey next year, uh, then it'll be Winops in Hershey. And, yeah, uh, I, know, I know Hershey sounds fun, but... <laughs> It's probably difficult to get into. There's probably not enough space. Well, I've heard there's a big conference center there. Okay. Um, and I, 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 the getting into that's the thing. Is is it easy? Is there a great airport? Does it have good? Well, Philadelphia, but you're Philadelphia could be away. close enough. Yeah. Philadelphia is great. I've been there once. Um, they got really good cheesesteaks. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard. It's, it's, I've been to what was it? Gino's or Pat's? I don't remember. I think it was Gino's. Okay. It's like it's lovely. You go there and you're right across the street from each other. And okay. I don't know if you've ever had their cheesesteaks. So can people buy tickets right now then? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So chocolateyfest.com. We are getting the site updated for all the talks and everything that we have accepted. So bear with us as we get that done. Um, Probably by the time this uh, show goes out, we'll have had it, uh, all the the sessions that are accepted so that people can get an idea of, this is the kind of content you're going to see here. So uh, there's going to be one on testing infrastructure. So, uh, and and again, back towards that Windows focus, because we haven't really seen a conference in the U.S. that really has, like, you go and it's, you see DevOps days and other things, but none of them are focused solely on Windows and how that stuff applies. And so that's what we wanted to bring, right? And we wanted to be that independent conference um, uh, that does stuff like that, where you see not just PowerShell, but also what does it look like when I'm trying to do vagrant testing? What does it look like, you know, uh, when I'm doing infrastructure as code? Uh, All those types of concepts you see and you've been hearing about with DevOps for years and bringing that into Windows. And it's been there for a while. I mean, I, I worked at Puppet for three and a half years Way, way back in 2013, we were having these, yeah. these, these talks, right? And so yeah. it's still a brand new concept for a lot of organizations. Windows operations, you know, Windows automation. Yeah. And then how is it scaling? Like, um, not from an infrastructure perspective, but... Conference or chocolatey <clears throat> No, the chocolatey itself. Like, from the perspective of, like, number of packages and, like, how you're handling that, I, I know that's... Ah. It's kind of a daunting task because, I mean, it, I know there's a lot of packages in there. So, like, how, what does that growth look like and how are you managing that? So, that's a great question. So, on the community repository, uh, there's about 6,000 packages now. And they're managed and, and moderated by uh, community folks. So, volunteers that uh, put up packages, keep them up to date. There are tools that help out with some automatic packaging. So, when, when there's new versions of, like, say, Google Chrome, within six hours, it's also up as a package going through the submission process, our moderation queue. Uh, to get accepted uh, on the website uh, as part of that community side. Uh, on the other side of that, when we're talking about organizational use of chocolate, they don't really use the community repository. Uh, they use stuff that's all internal, uh, so they don't have to worry about internet needs for downloading things at runtime. They have it all inside. Right? Um, yeah. For folks that aren't familiar necessarily with chocolate, it's, it's uh, kind of this software uh, deployment um, through PowerShell type packaging thing. Uh, and so uh, I guess the best way to explain it is you write your software deployment uh, one time uh, using PowerShell, and then you're able to take that, that package and deploy it anywhere you have Windows, Server Core, Azure, AWS, Google stuff, uh, on-prem, uh, with any tool, right? So SCCM can be your deployment method for getting those packages out there. You could use straight chocolatey. You could use chocolatey self-service, which we have in the, the commercial side. We have a new thing coming called the central management, which will have centralized reporting for all of those 
systems you have, uh, and also at the end of the year, tail end of the year, we'll have the ability to do deployments directly from that. So you'll have one tool that could be that one-stop shop for a lot of that software management. Right? So that really completes our story of Chocolaty being complete software management. Yeah. Right? It sounds like you're making a lot of uh, a lot of progress in the enterprise because I know oh, yeah. when we talked uh, a couple of years ago, you know, I was like, "Oh, I didn't know this whole side of it existed." But it sounds like that side is really maturing. And oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've been maturing that side for well, 2014 is kind of when we started down that story, right? We knew that we needed something. Uh, we needed it to make sure that Chocolatey had continued success year after year. So they could continue to exist as it got more and more popular. Because the worst thing is it gets super popular. And uh, that website and that uh, uh, community repository that's uh, free for folks to use, free for them to use completely, but it's not free to provide. And we're talking like uh, an infrastructure that costs somewhere between uh, thirty dollars and $80,000 a year to have up there. Right? And you have to have something behind that. And some of that, we get help from folks that, that kind of sponsor aspects of the, those things. But at the end of the day, you know, some we got to think about how do we sustain that if you know those help help that help goes away, we got to be self sufficient. Yeah, right. And we've we've definitely achieved that and more. And so uh, we're looking at how we can really take this thing and you know really uh, make Windows the most awesome framework or, or platform for automation. That's super cool. So. Okay. Very cool. Um, anything else you wanted to mention? I think we hit it all, man. I just showed up. <laughs> uh, so you got Chocolatey Fest coming. Yeah, that's, October eighth. That's, 8th. that's going to be awesome. Uh, we are going to be recording. Annual, like, yeah, this is so, our first. So in ten years from now, when people are going to like the tenth annual uh, Chocolatey Fest, uh, if you want to say that you were there for the first one, then you have to go this year. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just want to. You know that that's a that's a big deal. Yeah, so this is this is great. I mean, we're going to have uh, also a talk on Docker containers with Windows as well. Okay. So that's going to be Stefan Scher. He's coming yeah. in from oh gosh, where is he from? Like somewhere in Germany, I want to say. Okay. Um, he's the big guy on Windows and Docker and stuff. And so it's going to be really exciting to see him finally meet him in person. Uh, so yeah. many people in the chocolate community. This is going to be like a big family reunion for me yeah. of sorts because all these people in the community I've known for years and have never actually met them. Yeah. I, uh, literally, we hired a guy in May. Uh, he's here at the conference here. His name's Paul. And uh, he's been in the, the chocolate community for a long time. Never met him in person until here at that conference. <laughs> I, he gets here. That's and, what this conference is about. Yeah, he gets here and he's like, uh, we find out he's actually never been to the U.S. before either. That's crazy. So his first, get some root beer. His, his first, oh, no, he was looking for like uh, whiskey or, or what do they call it, uh, Scottish water, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Cool. Well, again, so thank you so much for coming on here and giving us an update on it. Yeah, absolutely. It's been awesome. Thank you so much. We're now sitting down with Michael Fazio. How's it going, Michael? Good. How are you guys? <laughs> yeah, just however close you are, I will adjust the I will adjust That'll the work. game. <laughs> He's not sure how to how close to be to the microphone there, but I'll take care of all of that for you. Excellent. You are our guest. So, uh, bots. So, what the heck is up with bots? You're speaking on bots here. Yeah, talking a little bit about uh, Alexa, Google Assistant in particular. Those okay. always seem to be the most popular. So. Yes. Had a conversation with a few people yesterday about actually writing the dialogue, yeah. which I feel like sometimes can get missed. It's like, okay, you're interacting with the English language with other people. How do you actually do that? What's the most efficient way? What's the, when you really, how can you most efficiently get the information either to the user or get what you need from them? Yeah. And so I feel like we get kind of trapped in looking at the technical part and missing 
all right, you're actually talking with somebody. How do you do that? So, so this a, is like really focusing on like what we would call like UX and other design yeah. areas. And so the, at a counterpart at that session, um, Diana Dable, who is just fantastic, she was talking about how she's a UX designer. She's a voice UX designer. Oh, like that's her, yeah. her main thing. And so talking about all the different nuance and how certain word choices can cause problems and all these pieces. And so we went through, okay, consider this, don't do this, talk about this, don't talk about this. Here's situations for humor. When you're calling people about a hospital thing, don't make it funny. That seems weird. People get creeped out. Don't do it. So it was, it was kind of cool for, even for me to learn about that and say, here's more stuff I need to think out more than just when I get these values out, return this data. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. The, the the humor thing in medical, I'm assuming that actually happens. Yes, it did actually happen. They're like, here's the scenario. It'll be great. And they're like, don't do that. It's creeping people out. Do not. Well, people have a lot of complaints about, you know, the humor from Siri and these other bots. Or like not already. even humor, but like the humanization of like yeah. speech patterns. A little a little too fake and creepy. And yeah, it's like it's like you're a bot. Just 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 do my bidding. Yeah. It's like people want a bot to be realistic enough to do what they need yeah. without being so realistic that they get tricked yeah. and they start getting freaked out. Um, there was yeah. the demo Google duplex from yep. uh, IO where they had people calling. They had the bot calling places and like booking an appointment. Oh, Hey, book an appointment for a haircut for me or call a Chinese restaurant and get a reservation. And people were like, that's really cool. Also, that's really unsettling because this bot is calling places and like has little ums and uh and pauses and all these little ticks that people have when they speak. And the bot was doing it really convincingly. And so they've actually changed it now where they say, this is the Google Assistant and I'm going and calling for so-and-so and making it obvious you're talking to a bot. Just know that's the case. Well, and I kind of understand why they didn't do that initially. Like, I, you know, I, I can condemn them for it, but I can sort of understand because... Like, what do you say? You know, the bot calls up like, hello, I'm a bot, but I'm not the type of bot that you're used to. This isn't just big clicking. (laughs) So, you know, pretend like I'm a human and this conversation should go pretty well. Like, really, do you like, do you need that disclaimer? And, and, you know, I think some of it goes down to like what you're doing with it. Because like in that example, where like you're making a reservation or something. And this is like with a company that doesn't have like an online ordering system or anything like that. You know, I'm sure that company kind of doesn't care that, you know, they're talking to a robot because at the end of the day, they're still making sales. They're still doing whatever. Um, but I, I think it changes a little bit. Like if, you know, the Google bot isn't calling to make the money, but it's like, hey, what's your special tonight? And then it's just updating like Google's yeah. menu that they have. You know, that's where it's like, like there are definitely yeah. ethical things that we haven't thought of. And I think yeah, you're just wasting every, their time and eventually. everybody. Yeah. You're wasting their time and everybody has like a different line. Like I'm, I may have been okay with being tricked as long as you know, like I was yeah. making money. On well, the maybe it side. saved you the next hundred calls, yeah. but if it's a small place, it might be the only call you got. So, you know, you're just messing with it. So I, I, yeah, I think it's a really complicated subject, but I think part of what I was thinking of too, was the fact that, um, people who talk to a bot, they might, you know, sometimes you'll do this thing where you, you know, it's a bot. So you'll talk to them like a bot. Yes. <laughs> so there's like two ways of thinking. I, I know you're a bot and I'm going to act like you are a, a deaf child mm-hmm. or, you know, I'm going to talk to you like a human and, and then you sort of have to handle everything in between. So that's got to be super challenging, right? Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason they went with the approach of, we're not going to tell you, we're just going to do this because 
they want to say if people talk to this bot like it's a person, you get a different style of speech than if you're just yeah. talking to a bot at home. When I talk to you know the Google Assistant at home, there's certain ways I talk, there's certain things I say that I know will work with the bots, and it's not how I talk to a normal person. And if it is, they'd probably be weirded out going. Why are you just commanding me to do things? Knock it off. I don't like this. So like one of the things I was just thinking about that is, is there things that like, as we're generating these scripts and things for our bots to say, to optimize for people that we might actually be screwing up like automation of other bots. So let's take that voice ordering thing where yeah. I, the, it's like making a call on behalf of me to make a reservation. Well, what happens when all of a sudden that other place, that restaurant gets a bot of their own <laughs> to, to, to field these requests? You're like, are there things that we're doing with these bots that might make those exchanges more awkward? I mean, it certainly could. I think it's a scenario where you're going to be training both sides with people and then with the bots. And like, I guess you could have certain ticks that the bots have that people don't as we're refining things and that may get amplified. But yeah, that gets into a very interesting scenario of just, you know, are we going to start messing with the human language and saying like, okay, it's supposed to work, but because we're bouncing back and forth between machines, it's no longer natural, even though we think it's supposed to. It'll just be those modem sounds like at the beginning. <laughs> and that's how they decide like, you know, hey, do you, you know, do you speak bot language number three? <laughs> well, one of the tenants we were talking about yesterday is, you know, talking about bot language and saying, hey, when people are trying to use these bots, how can we get to the point where the bots, we train people, we train the bots to work with what people say rather than training people on what to do. You know, and I think that gets in your scenario a bit where, you know, you've gone past training the bot to what to say, but it's like, if you're no longer training people and you're not training the bot, like the bot's training itself, it gets really, really muddy really fast. So the other thing I was thinking of, like, initially when you think of bots, it's like, you know, like the chat bots that you see that you like have IM messages with, but then we're talking about phone conversations. Like as we're talking about the UX and the experience of the language, how much does the voice and the... And, and the characteristics of the actual sounds that they're making affect, you know, you know, the building and decision and using of that as well. Well, that's one thing that I think people have to consider a lot of times when they're building a bot is what is the persona that you need to have? And again, I'm thinking about Diana right now talking about these pieces. What is what do you want your bot to sound like? How do you want to talk to people? Do you use a male or female voice? What is what's the way you want to go with it? Do you use something that's kind of in the middle so you're should not it sound about angry? Gender? Should it sound yeah. efficient? It should you know? Should it, it be lighthearted? Yeah. yeah. Should it sound like a robot? Should yeah. it be kind of lighthearted? And hey, we're having fun. I'm talking to you. Yeah. You know what's what's the proper scenario and what are you trying to get out of this conversation? Are you helping with someone with support? Is it? I want to find out info about your company. I'm trying to place an order. What are you trying to do? And all of those, you know, think about it like a real person. How would you talk to somebody if you're trying to sell them something versus give them info versus get them excited about something? Think about the bot in a similar fashion of what do you want to emphasize? What do you want to say? How do you want to say it? And kind of look at what's the best way to get your message across. Well, I think that's something that people kind of do a little bit more naturally. Like if you don't know somebody, you might approach them with like a slightly different voice, a slightly different style. You know, if you had a long relationship with them, you might come more jovially or, or, you know, or sarcastically or something like that. And it's all just very dynamic. Yeah. And if you think about it, if you come in and you have a bot and they're being all lighthearted and, you know, it's like you're 
you're their best buddy and you're going, I've never used this thing. Like, why is this bot trying to be like my pal here? Like, yeah. I don't know you're what's not going my pal, on, bro. Yeah. It's like, just chill out, you know, or again, it's that serious scenario where they're sitting there and they're the bots cracking weird little jokes and stuff. It's going to be off putting for people. They're not going to want to use it. And they're going, okay, take me to a real person. I don't want to deal with this bot anymore. I think puns are okay though. Again, depends on the scenario, but puns are good. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, what was I going to ask you? Um, yeah. So, like, there's whenever I uh, like place a call or something, and I have to talk to a bot, or I have to like dial or whatever, or if there's like a website and it pops up, how can I help you? You know, and there's this bot. I mean, just being honest with you, like, I try to avoid all of that stuff because they're they're just they're terrible. So, yeah. like, I, I know that there are good bots out there. So, like, what what is your take on the overall state of bots? I mean, is it that we just have, like, 99% of, like, shitty bots and then, like, there's this 1% of good bots that, 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 you know, maybe I just don't see very often? I think the best way to look at it is, say, you know, what are the traits of those good bots? And I yeah. think in a lot of scenarios, it's the bot does this much. It's this tiny little bit that you can accomplish with the bot and it yeah. has one little function or it's really black and white with the info you want. You know, you're calling, you're going and talking to the, the target bot and you want to get hours or directions to a store or a price for an item. And it, that's it. Okay, cool. That's, oh, that could that's work. A good point. Great. Yeah, yeah. If you're going ahead and saying, I want to ask, you know, different questions and nuanced things and all kinds of bits of info, then you end up with a lot more problems because okay, now I have to kind of figure out, did they mean this? Did they mean this thing? Am I actually going this way? And you end up in this conversation tree of, okay, I said this. Now I have these five options. Now each one of those can go these different ways. And it gets so complicated to handle. You just, you don't know necessarily where to go and you can't account for all those scenarios. Yeah. So I think it's getting better. But once we hit, get past that simple point of having all these things to worry about, then you start ending up with the bad bots that, okay, you're not helping me with what I want because there's so many things you could help with. Yeah. I think it's situations where... Like the, the software has failed me and I want to escalate to a human and then a bot sort of ins- inserts himself and is like the bouncer, right? Yep. That's when I get frustrated because I was trying to think like, okay, when are the bot good bot experiences? And you mentioned like getting hours or something like that. Like I think that works great. Um, I also, in the show notes a couple episodes ago, there was a podcast I'd listened to where they were talking about uh, college admissions and it was super interesting because they were these these uh, these these uh, students that were applying for loans would have questions, and historically, what they would do if they had a question, they were afraid to talk to a human, and they would give up, and then they wouldn't go to college. Like, how crazy is that? Gosh. And the bot, literally, by like making it available, they were like, "Well, that's just a bot. Like, I can ask a question from a bot," and then they they were able to you know get more of this money out there and get more people to go to, to college. So I thought that was like an amazing example example. Yeah, of a that's quote. a great scenario because instead of the you know, you're getting somewhat of like talking to a person without that fear of, oh my gosh, it's a person. I may say something stupid. They may judge me. And it's like, yeah. the, okay, the bot's not going to judge me. It doesn't care. It doesn't care if I misspeak or whatever. It just will go. And this is another thing to keep in mind when, okay, I'm working on a bot. When you don't understand something from the bot perspective, do not blame the user because that will make them stop dealing with it right away. Yeah. Don't say like, well, I didn't know what you said. You know, you didn't make sense there. Can you tell me again? They're going to go, okay, is this bot really telling me I can't talk or I don't know what I'm talking about because I'm not going to deal with you? So we have to make sure, put it on the bot, let them figure it out, let yeah. them say, I screwed up. How else can I help you? Okay, I can't do this. Maybe let's talk to a real person and get to that next level. Okay. 
And I thought I thought we would actually jump. We haven't talked tech at all yet. That's fine. I thought we'd talk about that. So, like um, you mentioned, uh, you know, some of the the, the voice assistant boxes, mm-hmm. uh, like Alexa and those types of uh, equipment. But like, what types of tech are you spe- have you been specifically working with? Or are you working with a little bit of everything? Let me a little bit of everything. Um, just you know, the, talking about these bots and getting everything set up. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I've been showing people is all right. Get your two bots set up. Get you know Alexa set up. Get Google set up. Have them feed into a place, and here's your Node app. Yeah. Have that serve up data. Because in the end, a lot of these are, once you've gone through the language and you figured out the pieces that you really want to get out of it, these little parameters that are saying, yeah. all right, I want, to know, you know, I want to know a name, I want to know a location, I want to know a time, whatever you're doing. You get those values out, and it says, I'm in this category, I have these values, serve up my data however it is. Yeah. One of the ways that I actually have explained it to people is, think about your mobile app kind of shrink it down to the pieces that people hit most frequently and you're going to do something very similar yeah. because you have some kind of API feeding data to a mobile app do it the same way okay and so you can kind of use whatever you need to as long as you can serve the data back in and then are you usually using like Microsoft bot framework on the back end or using something else like I've, custom I've done bot framework um, some of the pieces that bot framework handles for you like dialogue flow can take yeah. care of which is what Google Assistant has and then the Alexa skills kit can do a lot of that for you um I've gotten a couple of questions like, okay, bot framework, dialogue flow, the Alexa stuff, like what's the difference? And a lot of it really is doing the same things. The bot framework has much more coding that you need to do. Dialogue flow is kind of on the other end of, all right, I can put all my stuff in here. I can have some basic responses. Once I get more complicated, then we're going to the API, but it lets you take care of some of that in a UI perspective. Whether that's good or bad, that's up to you. Yeah, right tool for the job. Yep, but you have some options about it, and they're all doing similar enough options because it's something's been said, here's the data I need, somehow get data back to them so they can handle it. Okay, cool. So uh, you've been involved at that conference for a while now. Five years. Five years now. What are all the different roles that you've kind of assisted at that conference? So when I came in my first year, I had just started at a new company a couple months prior. I'm going in going, okay, I don't really know how this works. I've never really dealt with Microsoft technology, so I'm like still learning that with my new company. I come in and I'm like, I'm going to be in here. I'm going to be sitting by myself. I'm going to know nobody else. Okay, sit down for breakfast. Nobody else is around. I'm like, yep, I knew this was going to happen. Guy sits down, he's wearing Google Glass. Okay, I can talk to him. This is going to be fun. <laughs> I, we can do this. And so I'm chatting with the guy and started realizing, oh, everybody's kind of here, you know, in the same way. Like they're interested in some kind of technology or something with software. And it may not be the same thing, but they're excited about it. That's why they're here. Mm-hmm. And so kind of went from being that attendee and then went, I could do a session. Maybe I'll do that. So I came in here. I talked about Android versions, um, Marshmallow and Nougat's. Brought candy for people. It was fun. Last year, told people how to build stuff for bots. Mm-hmm. All right, this is going to be super cool. Let's do that. Came in this year, and I was volunteering ahead of time. I did a, the workshop on design dialogue for bots. Uh, I've got a session tomorrow morning about Kotlin, which is you know very much out of the Microsoft and the bot space. Um, so that's used for native Android development and JVM, and you can do JavaScript with it. Eventually native. It's it's very very cool. Um, and then I'm doing an open space in about oh, 20 minutes talking about <laughs> developing bots. And I, all of a sudden I'm going, how did wait what how did this happen? I just like used to show up to the conference and be here, and now it's like I'm doing all these things, and it's been really cool having the opportunities here to to do more and really get involved. 
and it's it's just a very welcoming environment, which I always love. It's been awesome. a lot of fun. Awesome. Cool. Cool. Well, thank you so much for talking yeah. to us. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. You're not a bot, right? Not as far as I know. Okay, cool. Uh-huh.